0: word to hebrews chapter five Uh, hebrews chapter five uh the the bulletin says verse 11 i'm actually going to start uh with verse 10 which is in the middle of a sentence and i know that and that's okay Um, it will make sense uh, eventually uh so if you would uh if you would give your attention to the reading of god's word and if you're able would you please stand as we read God's Word together. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 10, and I will stop in chapter 6, verse 12. Uh, Jesus being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from, uh, repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God, to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears storms and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned." but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, as we come to this, which you have inspired this unknown writer to record for us, and which is itself has which in itself has has difficult to understand phrases and references. Would You give clarity? Would You give understanding? Would You open our hearts and our minds to hear, to embrace, and more importantly, to grow in our love for Christ? For it's in His name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. So one of the things you'll notice if you um, spend time digging around on, on other church websites like I do from time to time... Uh, you 'll discover that that there's a trend and it 's not new it's it's really it 's not even really all that recent it's been around plenty long but there is a trend among churches to to talk about to use the phrase the term worship experience to 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 use this sort of concept that really what they want to do is to create for you for the person in the congregation a particular emotional response a, a particular experience for you to sort of go through now never mind that sort of communicates y'all come be passive and leave it to the professionals to do their thing right that's a that's a different conversation altogether but the aim seems to be that that we're going to we're going to use music and and instruments and the message and the decor and the um ambient, you know whatever you want to add to the list to create a particular experience for you a, a particular feeling to to create for us a, a particular emotional response <clears throat> The, the problem is, of course, that our feelings change. The problem is, of course, that our emotions rise and fall. And at some level, you kind of want to ask the question, how long is that emotional, you know, that emotional feeling, that emotional experience going to stick with you? Because my guess is, as soon as you get in the car and the kid says, hey, I'm hungry, what's for lunch? You suddenly are feeling a very different emotional response. The Bible doesn't place great emphasis on our emotional reactions. The Bible doesn't place great emphasis on how we feel at any given moment. Right? I mean, Romans 12 doesn't say, um, you know, be transformed by the renewal of your feelings. Right? Paul doesn't tell the Corinthians to take every emotion captive. He doesn't pray for the church in Colossae that that they will sort of be filled with this emotional experience of God. Instead, he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God. See, the recipients of this letter have had experiences. They've had feelings. They've experienced something. They've, they've, they're, they're connected to the church. They've, they've left Judaism, Judaism in, in some way and they're now in danger of, it seems, returning, of, of giving up. They've had some emotional experience in the past. But our experience isn't enough. And the writer of this passage, the writer of Hebrews, recognizes that. And it's in light of that 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 the writer issues a rebuke, a warning, and an encouragement to his readers. We see the rebuke in verses... At the end of of chapter 5, the writer, and this is why I started in verse 10, which was in the middle of a sentence, the writer begins to talk about Melchizedek. Melchizedek will come up again at the very end of chapter 6 and is the focus of chapter 7. And yet we have from 5.11 to 6.20, or to 6.19 at least, but to 6.20, this this interlude, this break in between a line of thought. And finally, I am grateful for a writer of Holy Scripture who has ADD. He mentions Melchizedek and says, wait, another thought enters his head. He wanders to deal with that before finally coming back to Melchizedek. I like this guy. But notice his thought. His thought is, I can't keep going. His realization is, I've got so much to say on this, but I can't. I've got more to write, I've got more to talk about, but I can't. Why? Because he says, it's hard to explain. Now there are, of course, multiple reasons why things might be hard to explain. For one, it could be hard to explain because, you know, it's rocket science. Like, it actually is rocket science. And and, and for 99.9% of us out there, that is hard for us to understand. It's, it's, it may be hard to explain. Things are hard to explain because the subject in themselves is a difficult subject. I watched Convocation at Covenant. Co- I'm, I'm a big fan of pomp and ceremony. Right? And so when you put a bunch of academics in their robes and their their cool doctoral hats. Um, and up on a stage and and you're playing bagpipes, I'm going to watch. So I watched Convocation from Covenant College. It's on YouTube. You can go do this too um, in your copious spare time. Um, And and while introducing a new biology professor, President Halverson read the title of her dissertation and then went, I have no idea what I just said. (laughs) Amino acids and membranes and things like that. He's like, yeah, I, I don't, I read this. He was like, "I don't, I don't know what I just said." Some things are hard to explain because they in themselves are difficult subjects. Sometimes things are hard to explain because the audience is unable to handle it. The subject itself may not be all that difficult, but the the audience, the listeners, the the people sitting there to whom and for whom you're trying to explain this thing, you realize they're not going to get it. Now, in this case, it's not because they're not smart. It's not about their lack of innate ability to understand it. Because he he goes on to tell us exactly why they're not going to get it. It's because you are dull of hearing. You've, you've let your, your hearing, your understanding become dull because you haven't been developing it. You haven't been training it. You haven't been using it. The problem is they've allowed their hearing, their understanding to become dull through the lack of use. They should be teachers. But they need teachers. Teachers. They should have grown beyond the basic principles of the oracles of God but they haven't. They should be eating steak and barbecue and burgers and ribs. They're drinking milk. See the reality is nobody nobody thinks twice about a a 12-week-old getting all of their nourishment from nursing. But a 12-year-old is a different matter. That's the point. They're not new converts. They're not new babes in the faith, as it were. They should be teachers. They should have grown. They should have matured, and they haven't. They're, they're still immature, but they're far too old in the faith to be immature. Immature. They're drinking milk as a 12-week-old, but they're 12-year-olds. They're too old to be still nursing, to be getting all of their nourishment through nursing. And you can see in verses 13 and 14, the. The illustration that he gives, that the writer gives us, to the the comparison, sort of the the picture of what he means by milk drinkers and solid food eaters, right? He distinguishes between the two. The milk drinkers are those who are unskilled in the word of righteousness. Who don't know what to do with God's word. They, They know it. They they have a knowledge of it, but they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to, how to apply it. They don't know how to, to, to use it in life. They don't know how to make connections, perhaps, from one passage to another. They're unskilled in the word of righteousness. Those who are, are solid food eaters are those who are supposed to have their powers of discernment Trained by constant practice so that they can distinguish good from evil. That is is both ethical good and evil, right and wrong. It's also um, objective, practical good and evil, uh, truth and error. The words actually kind of mean both. They're people who are supposed to be able to recognize good and evil, who are supposed to be able to distinguish between truth and error. And that practice, that that state, that ability to eat solid food comes in this case with practice. Are you unskilled in the word of righteousness? You may know it. You may may read it. You may even be able to, to recount it. But do you know... Have you trained yourself to distinguish good from evil? Do you know how to work with it and apply it and understand it correctly? Because isn't that really sort of a mark of people who want to sail along from experience to experience? I really don't do a whole lot between these two experiences. I just need one experience and hopefully it'll last me until the next one. If that's sort of sort of how we're marked out, if that's the, the mark of Christianity today, then it should be no wonder to us that the church is collapsing. To use way too strong a word, quite honestly. You do know I believe the church will never die, right? You do realize the church is not going to fail. Perhaps you say, but wait, didn't Jesus tell us us to have faith like a child? There's a difference between childlike faith and childish faith. And that's the distinguish the writer of Hebrews wants to make. That's the argument behind Hebrews 5.11-14. There's a rebuke. There's also a warning, and we find it in verses Four to six. I don't know if you've ever watched anybody who's um, out for a jog, and, and this would be me, by the way. I, if you've ever watched me jog, the, this question, will I guarantee you, will come up in your head at some point. If you ever watch somebody out for a run through the neighborhood, they're out for a jog, and and they stop. And you don't know if they're stopping because they're just sort of catching their breath for a minute, and they're going to start back up again, or if they are are just in over their heads and realize they've run as far as they can run and they're actually stopping. They're actually going to quit running altogether. See, the reality is both of those things start the same way. Both of those things look exactly the same in that moment. One stops running just to catch their breath and get going again. One stops running to stop running. That's part of the the picture here in Hebrews chapter 6. That when people stop running, as it were, in the faith, you don't know whether they're just taking a break, taking a breath, or whether they're about to give up altogether. And the reality is you can't tell the difference until it's too late. You can't recognize the difference until until it's already too late. To steal from one commentator, you can't tell the difference between someone who's backsliding for a moment and someone who's giving up completely. They look the same initially. Both start the same way. And so it's in light of that in verses 4-6 to that the writer actually warns against apostasy. Now, I... This is where I kind of have to let you into the sausage-making that is that is sermon writing. It is not lost on me the irony that a passage that warns against lack of understanding is itself difficult to understand. There are phrases and parts and aspects here that quite honestly... He could mean this, he could' mean that the reality is it, it, in the grand scheme of things it, it doesn 't matter because his, his aim his intent is clear regardless and that 's actually true of verses four to six and of verses one through three and and even if some of the specifics aren 't clear, the intent is because you read in verses four through six about people who who started. And gave up. We all know those people. We all know people who were involved in the life of the church, who were committed to youth group, who prayed and served among the saints, who tasted the sweetness of the gospel and participated in the fellowship of the saints, who are nowhere near the church today. People that, that I was near and dear friends with in high school in our church youth group and who prayed with and served with and did all kinds of things with. Nowhere. Nowhere to be found in the church today. They had once been enlightened. They had tasted of the heavenly gift. They had shared in the Holy Spirit, perhaps made a public profession of faith, shared even in the sacraments, but they have fallen away. And that may very well be what the writer has in mind in verses 4-6. through He may be warning his audience, beware because there are people who fit that description. It's possible he's actually making a reference um, back to uh, ancient Israel and to those who left Egypt and, and gave up before getting to the promised land as he did in uh, a, a sermon application earlier in the book. Whatever the case, his, his warning is real that apostasy is a very real danger, one that we need to train ourselves to avoid. I know what you 're thinking, but hold on a second, Jeff. I thought, I thought you here at Grace Covenant believe that once you were saved you 're always saved that you really can 't lose your salvation. in fact, in fact, you call it the pea in tulip, right perseverance of the saints. You argue that and you 'd be absolutely right. That those who are converted, that those who are truly saved, cannot and will not lose their salvation. And again, as I've said so many times before, it's a question of who is truly saved. Walking an aisle, praying a prayer, raising a hand doesn't convert you. Doesn't make you a Christian. Trusting in Christ and Him alone is what saves you. And Jesus Himself said, those that the Father has given Him, no one can take away from him, so whatever the specifics of verses four through six, whether he 's looking back to ancient Israel who who shared in the goodness of the Word of God and actually witnessed the powers of God over Egypt and over the sea and over all kinds of things, who gave up, or whether he 's talking about those who have been Around the church, those who we were convinced were converted, but who seem to have left the faith. His warning is real. Apostasy is a very real danger. There are people who profess faith in Christ and who never possess faith in Christ. In fact, you don't even have to go beyond the Bible to find that. In the parable of the sower, or the soils, depending on how you want to do that, right? The seed of God's Word is spread on four different kinds of soil. Three of them produce a plant. Only one of them produces fruit. Or for that matter, Jesus is sitting around the table with the twelve, and he warns, "There's a traitor." Like Matthew didn't elbow Nathaniel, right? Aunt Andrew, right? He threw an elbow at Andrew sitting next to him. Get a load of this guy, Jesus, right? Thanks a lot, Captain. Obviously, we all know it's Judas. He's sitting right here. Nobody did that. Nobody went, well, of course, Jesus, it's Judas. We all know exactly who it is. Nobody had a clue. That's the perfect description, the perfect illustration of those who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the Word of God and of the powers of the age to come, who participated in all of that, who saw all of that, and who was never truly converted. Besides, Jesus even warns that at the last day, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The danger of apostasy is real. That's the rebuke and the warning. But then he also gives a prevention in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6. Uh, Rick Phillips, a PCA pastor, former tank commander. There you go. We have a couple of those um, PCA pastor types uh, who are are retired tank commanders. Um, He uses an illustration in his commentary on Hebrews of of, uh, General George Patton who uh, believed that the only right thing for a military to do at any given moment is to go forward. And in his words, I hate paying for the same real estate twice. Right, And so as long as you're advancing, as long as you're going forward, then you're doing the right thing, taking more and more land. And that, of course, was a, a significant influence in the defeat of Adolf Hitler. Well, in many ways, that's the prevention for apostasy. Not sitting still, not holding tight, not, not holding on to the ground I've taken but advancing in our faith. And that's the, the picture of verses 1-3. through three. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Let's not lay the foundation of repentance from dead, dead works and faith toward God. And again, these, these references that he makes, uh, it's six individual things. They almost work in three pairs because the reality is repentance and faith is heads and tails of the same quarter. You turn from your sin. You turn from the old man. And and when you turn from something, you necessarily have to turn to something else. And so as you turn from the old man, you turn to Christ. That's repentance and faith. For that matter, that's our justification. I, um, instruction about washings and the laying on of hands. And again, this could be Jewish ceremonial washings. It could be baptism. The word there actually is baptisms in the plural. But to give you more Greek than you care about, that's not the normal word for baptism in other places. And it's almost never, and in fact, I think it's never plural so this may be Jewish ceremonial washings it may be Sinclair Ferguson says it's baptism so if, that, if that's all you need that's all you need it's good for me I, I'm okay with that in which case sort of this instructions about washing and laying on of hands kind of go together because it's, it's baptism which is kind of entrance into the church and laying on of hands was a, a practice of welcoming people into the life of the church kind of that pair goes together for our sanctification And then the the third pair, things five and six in his list, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, kind of looks ahead to our glorification. Those are the, the elementary doctrines of Christ, if you will. Those are the ABCs of the Christian faith. And the writer says we need to grow beyond these. Now, don't think... That what the writer really wants you to do is to disdain justification, sanctification, glorification. To disdain repentance and faith. To disdain baptism and church fellowship. To disdain a, a knowledge of and, and anticipation of our resurrection. He ate our resurrection and final joy. He's not He's not trying to say, okay, leave those behind, those don't matter. His point is simply this. Well, you don't take away the foundation once you finish building the house. But you also don't just lay the foundation and say there's my house. If you want to make it about ABCs and 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 language, you're you're not going to get very far in any language if all you have is A B and C. But you also can't throw off A B and C once you have D. Through Z. A child that never grows beyond milk has something wrong. How much more those of us who are spiritually malnourished and never grow beyond spiritual milk, never are able to eat the solid food of the depth and and of God's Word. I'm not going to argue with General Patton and military. I I have no idea, and I'm not the least bit qualified. For that matter, I'm not even sure I'm the least bit interested. Um, That may very well be true of, of the army. Let's go ahead and keep taking more and more land. But I believe it's true for the Christian. That we must always be advancing, always growing lest we remain stagnant. And the, the danger of of resting on past experiences rather than this continued growth is that you really can't tell the difference between pausing to rest and giving up completely. Let me make a couple of applications. Come a couple of sort of particular applications from this passage. Uh, the first is one that I've made before, although I think it's been a while. The words theology and doctrine aren't bad words. Biology is the study of bios, life. Theology is the study of theos. That's the Greek word for God. It seems like studying God would be something every child of God would long for. Yeah, it's a big fancy word and it overwhelms us and it scares us, what have you. But it simply means that we would grow in our knowledge of God. Doctrine just means teaching. If you believe the Bible teaches anything, you believe doctrine. And so when we dismiss doctrine as unnecessary, when we dismiss theology and doctrine as as bad words, and really all that matters is that I, I, I love Jesus and I love other people, I don't need to grow, I don't need to change, this is all I need, then you're saying, then why bother getting to know this Savior I love so deeply? Why, growing in, why bother growing in my knowledge of the One who gave Himself to save me from my sin? Why bother understanding this book that He's written to let me know who He is? Why bother growing at all Theology and doctrine aren't bad words. They simply mean I want to grow in my knowledge of God and my understanding of what He says about Himself and His love for me in His Word. However, don't let knowing theology replace knowing Christ don't let an understanding of theology and doctrine be enough to say, I don't need Jesus anymore. I don't need to grow in my love for Christ because the Bible does indeed command us to know Him, to love Him, and to serve Him, to grow in our knowledge of and our love for Christ and His church, which translates into knowing more about Him. May God grant us the grace to continue To take more ground in our Christian growth. Why? Well, because, like he says in verse 9, he has confidence that this danger of apostasy in verses 4 through 6, notice the pronouns change. He uses first and second pronouns, except first and second person pronouns, except in the apostasy section, in which he's talking about those people third person pronouns. When he turns his attention back to his audience in verse 9, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation in your case. May that be true of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church. Let's pray together. Our great God and our King, our salvation is all of Your grace. Uh, We are unworthy in and of ourselves. uh, Fallen, broken, rebellious sinners who have, by Your grace, uh, been called to saving faith in Christ. May it be that Your love for us fuels a deeper... Desire to grow in our love for you and therefore to know you better, to know you more, to understand this book that you have recorded for us about yourself and about your relationship to us, to know that better and understand it more rightly, more accurately, so that we might then take the truth and hope and goodness and sweetness of the gospel to those around us. We pray all of this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.